0: Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroche, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A show designed to create connection, fuel compassion, activate change, and figure out just who the fuck you are. Hey, gang, you're listening to the latest episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Today, we're joined by motivational speaker, writer, and mentor, Kevin Nahai. Kevin is an advocate for those dealing with complex emotional situations stemming from his own struggles with self-acceptance. His vibrant personality is immediately apparent when you see Kevin's videos encouraging people to embrace their truest selves while offering insight based on his experiences and own personal growth. I'm excited to get into that more, but before we get started, Kevin, will you share a little bit about yourself?
1: Nikki, thank you so much for having me on and for such a sweet introduction. I'm really touched.
0: For sure. Hey, man, it's your content. It's who you are. And I think it's well representative of what I've gotten to know of you so far.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be on the podcast. Yeah, a little bit about me. I'm a speaker. I speak to conferences, businesses, schools, things like that. And I'm also a coach. I work one-on-one with men and women in their 20s and 30s and I work on a select number of emotional, psychological issues. One is body image and eating disorders. The second is anxiety and depression and other sort of clinical psychological disorders. The third one is dating and relationships. That is probably my bread and butter. I think that's one of the things people need the most help with. And then the last area is self-esteem, self-confidence, self-acceptance, the way that you know we see ourselves just what you mentioned. And that sort of underpins the other three areas. So you can't work on any one of those three areas without working on the latter, which is the self-acceptance piece. And yeah, I only work on issues that I have suffered from immensely and overcome myself.
0: That's really interesting. I love that that's your approach because I feel like that must help you connect more deeply and just really more intimately on a psychological level with the people that you're working with. Do you feel that way?
1: Yes, that is my mission. So there are a lot of coaches and speakers out there who they'll be your business coach, they'll be your relationship coach, they'll be your life coach, you know, they'll be your fitness coach. And, you know, that's cool. But my entire practice is about giving people practical, real actionable solutions to the problems that they have and in order for me to be able to do that i must have overcome my own demons so i was severely anorexic i had zero confidence i had toxic relationships i went through awful breakups i had no clarity i had a complete lack of direction you know i had all of these problems all before the age of like 25 And I spent years learning how to overcome them and how to work through them. And of course, there are certain experiences in life that you have to go through yourself and no coach or therapist or whatever can, you know, spare you the pain. But then there are other experiences that if you've repeated them over and over again, or you've got patterns in your life that you haven't learned how to break, that's when I can step in and say, listen, I went through that let me save you some time. Like you want to accept yourself or you've got a problem with your body or you've got a problem with your relationship, right? You wake up on a Monday. What do you do? Like, how do you actually fix it? So, which is a very different approach than a lot of mental health professionals take, but I wanted to fill that gap. You know, if you've got severe trauma about something in your past and you come to me, I'm not trained to treat you. You've got to go to a psychiatrist. But if you know there's a problem in your life that you've been dealing with for a while and you're at your wits end and you're ready to change it, that's when I come to you and I say, okay, I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to walk you through this process. I've been to hell and back and I beat this thing. This is what we're going to do.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate the authenticity that comes with your practice and how you approach the world. And I'm curious because one of the first things that really stood out to me about you was how transparent you are about your own emotional and physical well being, emotional and mental and physical well being, I should say. Have you always been that open in your life in that way? Or is that something that you've evolved to?
1: Much to my mother's dismay, I have always been that way. I've always worn my heart on my sleeve. You know, I have no filter about my life or other people's lives. You know, I speak with tact. I'm not judgmental or crass, you know, but yeah, I've always been very open. And I've also always been very sensitive and very emotional. And I've always had this approach of like, whatever people think of me, please let them because in their minds, you know, it's probably true. And I don't have anything to prove to anybody. You know, obviously I want to be liked. I want to have a good reputation. I want people's approval. You know, if I sat here and acted like I don't care what people think, it would be a complete lie. But as I said, I don't have anything to hide. I don't have anything to prove. And it's not something I practiced or developed or I can really take credit for. You know, my mom is always saying like, be careful what you say, because girls are not going to date a guy who airs all their dirty laundry and talks about their emotional issues.
0: Such a mom thing to say, though. It's yeah, like, of course. honey, you're so great. I love you so much. But also, like, don't be 100% yourself all the time in case somebody actually hears that. Like, yeah. You know, it's like... Of course. but
1: I, It's like when your mom tells you, you are so pretty and you are so smart, sweetheart. If only you lost like five to 10 pounds. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally,
0: totally. I go back to a moment in college where I had put on a lot of weight and I had been athletic most of my life, like playing sports all the time. And I came home and my mom, like jokingly air quotes mm-hmm. <laughs> called me, she made a comment about like the Pillsbury dough girl, like playfully. Right. And I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, uh, no, 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 it's like, it doesn't matter how playful it is. Right. Like, because it does cut deep to somebody who has these feelings and these big feelings about everything. And to your point, like, that acceptance of self, that desire to be liked and seen for who you are. And so, yeah, moms have a way of both being simultaneously like the your number one fan and also like your hardest, critic. Your biggest
1: critic. critic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I will add one thing to answer your question in a little more detail of like, was I always this way of being open and transparent? And yes, the truth is that I was always that way. And I never hid anything about who I am or what I've been through or anything like that. But there's an important distinction, which is that although I may have had the strength to talk about those things openly and not to hide them, I didn't accept them. And I wasn't proud of them. And I wasn't happy with them. You know, now I'm in a place where I can talk about all of the pain that I've been through and all the mistakes that I made and all of the regrets that I have and you know, be really vulnerable, and I accept all of that, and I appreciate all of that, and I take a hundred percent responsibility for all of that. Whereas years ago, I would talk about those things openly, and I wouldn't just shut myself away and keep it in, but I was talking about those things in a very harsh, negative, self-deprecating, self-destructive way, you know, of just filled with so much self-loathing and so much hatred. Do you feel
0: like you had a specific moment where you decided that you were going to address that? Because for myself, I feel like it took being in therapy and acknowledging much like you, I think in some ways, based on what you're saying, I felt that I was communicating my emotions. I was explaining how I felt to people or I was writing how I felt to people and assuming that people could distill down what it was that I meant that I was feeling from what I'd written. And then after going to therapy for a while and basically having my therapist call bullshit on the fact that I wasn't going deeper on the things that I was saying really sort of shifted my perspective on that, where I had to stop looking at it and talking about it objectively, as in sort of this third party narrative where here's this thing that I'm telling you right now that I am emotionally connected to. But when I communicate that, especially verbally to somebody, if it's something that is vulnerable, I try to say the emotional thing with the intent behind the emotion, but also guard myself from any response, if that makes sense, where it's I just I wanted to explain it. But I didn't want anybody to show me sympathy or make me feel bad or do anything that would Force me to really acknowledge what was the root cause of whatever that was that I was feeling anyway. So do you feel like something came up for you in a moment specifically or over time that really you said to yourself, I want to be different in how I approach this?
1: Yeah, it wasn't in a specific moment. You know how people talk about like these aha moments or come to Jesus moments? Those happen, but they're very rare. So most of the time our emotional development occurs over a long period of time. Now, somebody might say something or do something that inspires you or pushes you or catalyzes your emotional growth, but you don't wake up on a Tuesday, you know, feeling like a brand new, completely different person when the day before on Monday, you were miserable. So it takes a long time and it took me a long time to sort of shift into acceptance gear. And you know, really get to the root of it rather than talking about myself like a third party, as you say. But one of the things that did catalyze my growth, which is a good thing to pay attention to, is most of the time, I'd say 80% of the time, when I ask you, hey, Nikki, how are you doing? You will tell me what you think. You won't tell me what you feel. So you will tell me, oh, you know, I'm doing okay, but... It's been kind of a rough day. Now I'm taking some time for myself to sort of cool off. I'm just a little bit stressed. Okay, those are all thoughts. None of that, it sounds like you're expressing the way that you feel, but all of that is intellectual. So underneath, and that's sort of like the third party, that's like Nikki stepping out of Nikki's body and watching Nikki talk to another person, right? But underneath all of that, there is... I'm angry. I'm ashamed. I'm terrified. I'm anxious as hell. You know, there's a whole host of emotions that are going on. And I'm not saying that every person you meet, you should like spill your heart to them and, you know, tell your life story. But, you know, it is important to be attuned to, am I explaining the way I think and what's going on in my mind? whether that's to a therapist, to your best friend, to your mom, to your coach, or am I talking about what I think and staying up in this very cerebral place that, as you said earlier, your therapist called bullshit on you. It's very hard to drop out of your head and into your body and really understand what you are feeling, not what you're thinking.
0: Yeah, that's super insightful. I love that you said to take like – drop from your head into your body. And I think part of that too is really into where you actually physically are feeling those emotions too. Like that's something that has come to fruition with the work that I've been doing in therapy. I joke around. I actually have two therapists. (laughs) One's for like regular talk therapy. Yep. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, One's for regular talk therapy and one's for trauma. And so I'm not sure if you're familiar with EMDR therapy, but it's basically- Eye movement,
1: desensitization and restabilization or something.
0: A reprocessing. Yeah. Oh, so okay, okay. But yeah, you're way closer than most people I would ask about it. So you're <laughs> good. But so there are two very different things, right? Like one to your point is where you're working a lot on just sort of the everyday stuff that you're going through that might tie back to historic life situations, traumas, whatever it might be. And then EMDR is very focused, very targeted. Literally, like that's the word that you use: is that you focus on a target. So, if something traumatic happens to you, you go to a specific moment within this trauma and you work on that. And you work on that to a degree that is really unsettling, honestly. And so, what was really mind blowing for me about it, though, was I, my wife, and a friend of mine who had done it and who had benefit from it significantly. And I was very apprehensive, and I remember coming out of the first session and being like, holy shit, I feel like I literally got hit by a Mack truck, like not just emotionally, but physically, because the exercise of going through this type of therapy requires you to acknowledge what you're feeling, rate it on a scale of one to 10 as you're going into the process of it. I'm oversimplifying this by a landslide. So like show notes can include some links to this. But the big thing that comes out of it is Notice how you feel, literally physically. Like, what do you feel in your body? And keep coming back to what do you feel in your body? What do you feel in your body? And because you have to get to that in order to relieve yourself of this really long standing pain or stress or frustration. And so it's interesting to me that that's your approach to the way that you think and that you work to really whittle it down to okay, this is where I'm at and this is how I'm thinking about it. But really at our core, it comes down to how do we feel about it? And it's not just emotional feelings. It's also literal, physical, tangible feelings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, if somebody has severe trauma that I'm not trained to treat them and I will send them to a specialist who does EMDR or something called ISTDP, Intensive Dynamic Psychotherapy, something (laughs) Intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. I can send you a link to that too for anyone who's interested. So yeah, I don't do that stuff. And I, as I said, my practice is a lot more solution-oriented than it is kind of therapy-oriented. But I will definitely, you know, call people out. You know, I'll ask them, how are you doing? What's going on? And like the first two three sessions that they're working with me, they've got this major guard up, which makes sense because I'm a stranger. So they'll tell me what they're thinking. And they'll do this dance of like, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, my boyfriend dumped me yesterday, but otherwise things are peaches and cream. And I'm like, okay, okay. No, 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 You know, let's, so yeah, I'm very gentle and very compassionate and very loving, but I'm also tough as nails, not in the sense that I'll be aggressive with my clients because, you know, nobody wants you coming down on them, but tough as nails in the sense that I really hold people accountable.
0: That's important, though. I think that's the biggest reason people don't want to actually do this type of work is because you have the freedom from accountability when you don't acknowledge what you need to acknowledge. And frankly, it's I say this all the time to people. My biggest pet peeve is lack of accountability, whether it is at a micro level or a macro level. It could be somebody's not accountable for something that they did and they should be in like your workplace or look at our government, <laughs> You know, right. nobody's accountable and crazy shit's happening. So yeah. there is this part of me that really, that resonates with me so much because you have to be. And I think the way that you're talking about approaching it is the right way to do that, which is coming from a place of compassion, but also not allowing people to stay in this comfort zone because the comfort zone is actually full of discomfort. It's just long-term discomfort that you've gotten used to
1: almost. Oh, I'm so glad you say that. There's something I talk about all the time, which is fascinating to me, and I don't know why all humans, when we're born, we come equipped with this capacity for self-destruction. It's something I call addiction to your problems, and I always tell people, don't get addicted to your problems. And they say, well, what are you talking about? My problems are horrible. I wish I could just drop them all. I'm not addicted to them. And I say, no, 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 you are addicted to them. And it's okay, we're all addicted to our problems. But basically what it means is that human beings are suckers for familiarity. And we would rather stay in a situation that is familiar, no matter how awful it feels, than take the jump into a situation that is different and will benefit us in the long term, because that's scary. And we don't know what that looks like. So we get addicted to our problems because it is so seductive to stay comfortable in our own discomfort. If all you've known, and this is the the basis of Stockholm syndrome, you know, you you love your abuser and you stay loyal to your abuser. It's because if you've been abused for five years, at least you know what's going to happen when you get home. That is a lot more comforting than... Dropping your husband or wife, taking your kids, packing up your shit, and going out into the world where you have no support, you have to start over anew, you know, I mean, that's terrifying. Obviously, it's the better alternative than staying at home and getting beat, God forbid, right? So that's an extreme example, but... But it's also not an uncommon example. So
0: it's extreme in the outcome and the challenge to address it is definitely more, I think, as anybody who has been in or witnessed any sort of abusive situation, like it's extremely hard to leave that, but it's also a super common thing. So like it's extreme in its nature, but not in its frequency, I guess, the way I would describe it. But I get what you're saying with that, because it's the same thing with even just recently having conversations where I've been saying to my parents, like, we need to talk. We need to talk about these things. They're going to make you uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. But we have to do it because we can't just sit here and act like shit's not the way that it is. And it's totally fine to just ignore it and move on with our lives. And for them, in a lot of ways, that is fine. That's comfortable for them. Because if we don't talk about it, then they don't have to feel anything about it. And how easy is that? And I'm like, but I'm over here feeling all of it. And I need to talk about it. Yeah. So I'm going to need you to get a little bit uncomfortable because it, it really does. It's about setting boundaries too. And and Kevin, I think that's part of what you're saying, right? It's like, it's not just a boundary for somebody else. It's a boundary for yourself. Like, what are you willing to accept? And what do you really need to change for yourself to have that life that you truly want to pursue? So like, when you think about that, What was the hardest thing for you to acknowledge for yourself in order to get the help that you needed to live life on your terms? Because I feel like you've obviously thought about this a lot.
1: So are you saying what was the hardest part about breaking my own addiction to my problems? Or are you saying how did I do that?
0: Both. But what was really sort of the forcing function there for you as far as what was the hurdle that you had to get over to get to the point where you actually could start doing that for yourself?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So first I'll tell you what was the hardest part and then I'll tell you how I did it. The hardest part of breaking my own addiction to my problems. And by the way, when I talk about these things, I want all your listeners to know I'm not on a high horse here. I am you, you know, we are us. (laughs) Yeah. I have had so every emotional problem you can imagine. And however. Messed up, you think you are like I have been there, so I'm not trying to be like you know, these I'm not trying to be this guy who's like, Oh, I overcame everything and look, I'm a saint, and you know, I'm so like, I hate that. I have no self righteousness about any of this, so you know, when I talk about like how did I overcome this stuff, it's I really don't want anyone to think I'm talking at them from a soapbox, you know, I just want to like get on your level,
0: yeah. I think your overall vibe at least from my perspective, makes that pretty clear, but I can attest to that. It definitely comes from a place of healing and and nurturing other people to be able to get some sense of completion or some sense of self-acceptance. So yeah, I mean, I think people like yourself have to go through things to be able to effectively communicate with other people about how they can do that for themselves and it just so happens that you have a platform to do that. So I think that even if it is a soapbox, it's a welcome soapbox, right?
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just throw that caveat out there so everybody knows that, you know, I've been through all of this stuff too and I'm right there in the fight with you, you know. Yeah, I like that a lot. My own problems started obviously at an early age because they all do for everybody. There are some psychologists who say that your entire life is decided for you before the age of six.
0: I have to pause you there. This is one of the things that I have taken like very, very much to heart and had to like dive into like ADHD hyper focus to be like, What the hell happens from zero to six? (laughs) Because it's everything that you can't remember, but defines you, which is crazy. I know. I'm sorry, but I feel you on that. No, I don't.
1: Okay. (laughs) But when I
0: do, it's gonna be like very, very specific that I don't screw them up for the first
1: seventy-two months. (laughs) Seventy-two months. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're human. You're gonna screw them up, but you want exactly. If you're gonna screw them up, just try until they make it past kindergarten. So that you're setting them up for a good be the chance. Best you
0: know? parent till they're seven, and then yeah. let
1: hell exactly. Then you can let vary. them become a drug dealer; they'll be fine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> just 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 handing out the pills in in second grade—it's fine. Don't worry exactly. about it. Zero through six,
1: we did exactly. great. <laughs> so my problem started at an early age. Like I had abandonment issues, not because my mother abandoned me, but just because I don't know. I had two older siblings; they got more attention than I did. You know, I had a nanny who took care of me, who was like a second mother to me. Then one day she up and left. So she kind of abandoned me. I was an overweight kid. I was chunky. I got picked on a lot in elementary school, which is where my body issues started. Um, and I was I an extremely anxious kid in middle school and high school. I used to throw up all the time. I used to have these migraines because of my own anxiety. But the real Mack truck hit me when I was 19. That's when I got diagnosed with a chronic incurable disease, which I live with today, and it's excruciating. That's when my, you know, I started getting panic attacks. I became depressed. That's when my anorexia really started, my first semester of college. So I suffered with all of that for years. And the hardest part about it was also what forced me to change it and forced me to break my own addiction to those problems and my own familiarity with that discomfort and that was that I almost died on several occasions due to your illness or separately well one was due to an almost suicide a couple other times were due to my illness and my anorexia and my organs failing you know
0: Can I ask you to elaborate a little bit on and you don't you only have to go into as much detail as you feel like, but do you feel like getting to the point where you were suicidal was something that did become a turning point for you? Or was it not until something else happened? That's a really, I think everybody or many people have suicidal ideations, right? I think that that's kind of a natural thing when you feel like you don't have an escape and, and you're like, I'd like to just not have to deal with any of this. But It's a much different thing if you're thinking about it or trying to do it and i'm curious if you are comfortable explaining any of that how you went from kind of that to where you are now and you don't have to give sort of like like long breadth of everything that's happened since but you know it's a big transformation to make to be in a place like that to where you are now and the way that you speak about your life
1: so my suicidal period in my life was when i was 19 probably you know almost about to be 20. So I was like a year into battling all of this stuff. And I didn't really get better until a few years later. So that was not the sort of crucial turning point where I was like, okay, now I know that, you know, I want to die. But after this, like, I'm happy go lucky. You know, like I said, it, it took me years to grow out of that. But when I say, you know, the turning point was that I almost lost my life, it was because that happened over a course of a couple of years from being so sick, whether it was mentally, physically, emotionally, so forth and so on. The real sort of turning point occurred when I was, I would say, 24 or 25. And again, it wasn't a specific moment, but it occurred when I hit my rock bottom. I guess you could say that I was at my rock bottom when I was suicidal, but I hit a different type of rock bottom, which was, okay, I've been dealing with this stuff now for three, four, five years of like every day, just feeling horrible and depressed and terrified and dealing with excruciating pain. And if I'm going to live this way, why didn't I just die then? Like, why didn't I just take my own life then? Because if you're going to live your life like that, like a prisoner, not take accountability, not have the willingness to change, you know, and just give up, that's basically the same thing as dying. So
0: it gets back to what you said about being comfortable in the discomfort, right? And at what point does that turn into just blatant suffering like you're describing? Because if you're comfortable in the discomfort, but the discomfort is so overwhelming that you don't understand why you're still here. It's actually like, you have to be at a turning point. You know what I mean? Like you, your option is to continue to sink into it and basically let yourself sort of wither away both metaphorically and potentially physically. And then there's also the reality of what happens if you do try and you do change the way things are going. And my wife suffers from chronic migraine and some other significant physical ailments. And I watched her for two years, basically not be able to function the way she normally would. And she was a division one athlete. She grew up completely active. She works with children with special needs. Like she's somebody who needs to be out in the world doing things, you know, and I, for 18 hours a day for a year, at least, you know, she was getting sick and throwing up. And oh my I, God, I'm so I watched sorry. I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, and it was hard for both of us. Honestly, it was very challenging to watch the person you love most in the world suffer that much all the time, but then also to not understand the pain and to have moments where, you know, I think I was unnecessarily unforgiving with it because I like we literally started going to couples therapy because I said to her, I'm starting to feel resentful and I know this isn't your fault, but like, I can't keep doing this. I feel like my life is getting dragged down too. And I don't want it to be that way. I want to be with you and I want to help you. But to watch somebody get to that point in their lives where, you know, how can you not be depressed if you can't live your life? You know, how can you're constantly in pain, right? Chronic illnesses, it's this invisible pain. People don't see it and they expect you to be okay. And then there's the subsequent mental health issues that come with having chronic pain all the time because how could it not so you just really like she said to me at one point I really just I felt like what was the point what was I doing here anymore because I wasn't doing anything and I feel like I to draw the parallel since it wasn't my own experience but like it was a shared lived experience in a way obviously less detrimental to myself but I understand and I feel where you're coming from really
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And I want to validate the position you were in because, you know, my family has told me that there is nothing more painful than watching someone you love be in pain and go through something really destructive and you're helpless and you can't do anything about it.
0: Yeah. I just got goosebumps. It's really, really hard. And it's horrible. And you don't want to talk about it either on that side of things, too. Right. Because you don't want
1: to seem selfish. But 100%. You're
0: you're like, this person's going through something, but
1: I'm feeling it too. Mm." (laughs) No, no, you are. You absolutely are. And, you know, somebody who is an addict, they're suffering from a heroin addiction, for example, and they're suffering from withdrawal and they hate themselves and they're always on the verge of overdosing or something like that. That person suffers 50% as much as their mother. You know, that person's parents are the ones who are really dying.
0: Yeah. I actually have my best friend back East. Actually, her sister is a heroin addict. And she has said to me, you know, like, I can't do anything else if she
1: won't do something for herself. And I, exactly. I think that's
0: like everything that pause you're, you're right talking there. about. I'm going to let you go anyway. Go.
1: <laughs> let me pause you right there. Say that again for the people in the back.
0: You can't do anything to help somebody who's not willing to help themselves.
1: Who's not willing to help themselves. Who's not able to help themselves. Who's not at that place. You know, So one of the crucial, again, it doesn't happen overnight, but one of the crucial turning points in my life to get back to your question of how did you start to overcome this stuff was when I realized that some of the things I've been through are completely my fault, my mistake. Other things that I've been through are not my fault. Like I didn't ask for this disease, right? But regardless of whose fault it is, it is my mess to clean up. The doctor is not going to fix it for me. My mama is not going to fix it for me. Nikki's not going to fix it for me. It is my responsibility. And I tell this to people who, my clients, they've gone through divorces. They deal with diseases. They've been cheated on. They've been fired. You know, those are things that may or may not be their fault. They may or may not have had anything to do with the genesis of those issues in their lives. But they say to me, you know, I didn't want this. I didn't ask for this. I didn't create this. Well, first of all, you might have created it. Maybe not, which is another conversation for another time. But regardless of who created it, it is your responsibility now. It is exactly the same as the stork drops off the baby on your doorstep. Maybe you wanted a baby, maybe you didn't. But what are you going to do? Take the baby and put it in a dumpster? That's what most people do with their problems. They say, oh, this isn't my fault. I don't want to deal with this. This is somebody else's issue. So the turning point in my life, like I said, around the age of 24, 25, was when I realized, holy shit, excuse my language. This, this is- so
0: called Who the Fuck? And I've said okay. shit at least three times. You're square.
1: Okay, cool. You know, this moment, I was in the gym in Venice, California at Gold's Gym it was a saturday night which is what i used to do at that time in my life was go to the gym on saturday nights cuz you know i didn't have a girlfriend i was not socializing i was very depressed so anyway i had this moment when i realized everything in my life is up to me to clean up i've been sitting here for years being depressed being anxious being unhappy with my relationships feeling unloved feeling like i'm not whole feeling a lack of clarity And I can't go back and change the beginning, but I can start where I am and change the ending. So when you say nobody can help you if you don't want to help yourself, say it louder for the people in the back. You have to want more for your life. You have to get to a point and push yourself to a point where you say, this is up to me now whether I wanted this or I don't, it's my problem now. And you know what? That's a good thing because I get to determine what happens from this point forward. I get to clean it up.
0: Yeah. It's a really beautiful sentiment, Kevin. And I think that you really tackled I mean I got goosebumps a couple times while you were saying those things because you know some of the things aren't things that people haven't heard before but it there's a conviction in the way that you say it and I really feel like I can understand how somebody who is a client of yours gets really this motivation to be on the right track because of how you speak about these things and how important it really is And when you made the comment about you know you don't get to write the story up till now right unfortunately in some ways we don't and in many ways life happens to us right we don't always get to choose that so how you respond to that is really important and i do know from experience that sometimes your response is not as prompt maybe as you'd like it to be of course you know it takes time to process it takes time to figure out what it is that you're actually dealing with and that you're trying to go through But when you really get to the root of it, and you're able to ask yourself the hard questions, it puts you in a position to say, okay, well, if I didn't like what happened, and I don't want it to happen again, how can I do my best to make sure that that doesn't happen again, or to make sure it happens differently? and in many cases, we can control that outcome. In some, we can't. There's always the unpredictability of life where, you know, like a wrench is going to get thrown into things. I think 2020 is a perfect example of that uh, across the board. And at the same time, if you allow all of the negatives and the traumatic experiences and the hard parts of life to take over and really, I think you use the term sort of like an imprisonment, right? Like you get so tied up with the grief for a life that you wanted that you completely throw away the life you could have.
1: Ah, I love that. That is so eloquent and beautifully said. Yeah, the way that I describe it is that most of the time because things haven't gone the way we wanted them to in our lives, Or, I mean, Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, so you've got your plan. This is what I wanted. I wanted to be married by age, whatever. I wanted to have kids by age, whatever. I wanted to make money, you know, X amount of money. Then you get punched in the face by life, whether that's because of your own poor decisions or something happened to you. And the question I ask people is, you're driving along on the freeway, you get a flat tire. Okay. You got to pull the car over. Do you get out of the car and slash the other three tires? No, you replace the tire, you get back in your car and you move along. But for most of us, and again, I was this person, we get so devastated by the fact that something didn't go the way we wanted, or some really difficult event occurred in our lives, that we get out of the car and we slash the other three tires. You know, we say, okay, well, I I guess that's it. I'm, you know, I'm going to, throw it all away.
0: Yeah. Hands in the air, like, oh, fuck it. Like, I don't know what to do now. So yeah, it's, it's interesting because it also implies being stranded if you slash the rest of your tires. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to continue with that analogy for a second, it really, it inhibits you from getting anywhere else. It's not just, oh, like you're sitting there in this like wallowing in the self pity, but you're also, you're acknowledging your refusal to continue despite what has happened. And I feel like that's how you get trapped in that
1: cycle. A lot of the time to use the tire analogy, we get a flat tire and we don't pull over. We keep on driving until you're starting to bend the rim and then sparks catch and then it hits the gasoline and then your whole car explodes because you think, okay, whatever, this problem will just sort itself out. You know? But again, that is an unwillingness to take responsibility, to turn your life around you know and say all right i can't go back and change the beginning but i can start where i am and change the ending
0: yeah i so, really love that so i'd love to know you know you've gone on this journey you've created a path for yourself you've moved forward from what sounds like a a wealth of challenges no small tasks i mean a wealth and, and- of
1: challenges that's a good <laughs> word for it because it has made me wealthy
0: good yes it has like made that. me rich
1: but it's made me wealthy <laughs>
0: Yes, big difference. Big difference. Uh, <laughs> well, and I think that there is—it's funny. I feel like there is absolutely, you know, more currency to me in the emotional wealth than there really ever will be in the financial side oh, of things. 100 percent. Ideally, I, like those become synergistic at some point, just so you can get by. That would be good. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm curious. How did you get from those points of realization to where you are now as a motivational speaker and a coach and mentor? Is that something that you Have always felt inclined to, or is that something that you, you know, ultimately said, I've gone through this and now I feel like it's my mission to help other
1: people, or both maybe? That's a good question. So, my entire life since I was a kid, I wanted to do what I'm doing now in some form or another. I loved people, I was fascinated by people, I couldn't get to know a person fast enough. I wanted to learn everything about their story. I was always the 3 a.m. phone call for my friends. People have told me my entire life, "Oh, you got to write a book. You got to become a therapist. You got to do this. You got to do that." But I also, for most of my life, hated myself. Which people did not know because I had a very jovial, outgoing personality and I was, you know, charismatic and always had a smile on my face and I was always very positive. So, People just kind of always like assumed like oh Kevin's good, you know, he's got it all together even though I really didn't and I didn't accept myself and I didn't believe in myself. So, I tried like 15 different things. I was a professional musician, started playing drums at the age of 6 and I pursued that for a long long time. I worked in hospitality, bars and restaurants. I worked for the government Uh, Was a personal trainer. I became a nutritionist. I worked in the entertainment business. I worked at record labels. I went to graduate school. You know, I got two master's degrees, and none of that applied to any of what I'm doing now. Uh, That's usually how it goes, which is okay. But basically, you know, I finally accepted and respected and appreciated myself enough to say, not only can I do this, but I have to, like, this is my calling. This is what I have wanted to do my entire life. And it's scary. It's scary to take the leap, but I know I can, and I have an obligation. But the important thing I want to point out, because I said, you know, I finally accepted myself enough and believed in myself enough. The important thing to point out is, you know, when people ask me, how do I love myself more? How do I accept myself more? How do I believe in myself more? You don't just snap your fingers and say, okay, I accept everything about my life. You've got to do a three-step process, which I'm going off into a tangent here. So I can talk about that in a second, but first I want to make sure. Tangents
0: are welcome. Come hither.
1: (laughs) Okay. So the point that I'm making is that in order to get to the place where I finally accepted myself and believed in myself enough to do this, I had to follow this like three-step process. And the first step is I had to take an audit of my life and say, what do I like? What do I not like? What do I want to change? And what am I cool with? The second step was the things that I didn't like, which were many. I had to change them. So if you're really uncomfortable with your body and your appearance, I can tell you to love and accept yourself all day long. Nothing's going to change until you get your ass in the gym and actually feel proud of the way that you look, you know? So there are all of these like self-help gurus who tell you like, believe in yourself, love yourself, accept yourself. Well, what does that mean if there are 101 things about yourself that you don't like, you know? You actually have to get off your ass and change those things physically, intellectually, emotionally. One of the things I hated about myself was that I had a temper. It's not easy to learn how to get rid of your temper. I can tell <laughs> Okay. Well, I'll stay on your good side then.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I will say this. I've been really pleased with the results in the last like year. And it does have to do with making the conscious effort acknowledging that I did not like how I felt after I was a complete raging asshole. Right. So it wasn't just that, oh, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have said those things. It was like, I shouldn't have said those things. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. And now, not only have I made you feel shitty, I've made myself feel shitty because nobody got what they needed out of that. So I I totally understand that as an example because it honestly, I think a temper, I think anger is, an emotion that is so regularly thought of as something that's impulsive and almost uncontrollable in that way, because it is impulsive. But really, it's a matter of asking yourself why you're reacting that way. So then you can figure out like, should I even be reacting this way? Right,
1: right. So yeah, I'm glad you relate. So that was one of the things about myself that I didn't like, and I wanted to change, which was part of step two. You know, how can I love and accept myself until and unless I actually am what I want? You know, but this brings me to step three, which are, there are some things about yourself and your behavior and your patterns that you can change. There are other things about yourself that are innate and irreversible. And those are the things that you cannot fight. So step one is do an audit of your life. What do you like? What do you not like? Step two is identify things and patterns in your life that you don't like and change them, actually change them. Step three is there are things about you that you may not like or you've been trying to fight, but they're never gonna change. Those are the things you have to surrender to and accept. Perfect example is you have a certain sexual orientation. You may have hated that your whole life. You hate being gay or you hate that you're not like anybody else. Probably never going to change. You got to accept that. Me, I am an anxiously attached person. I tend to get attached to romantic partners. I can work through that and I can make it a little bit better, but that's part of who I am. I am very sensitive. I'm very emotional in my relationships. I get attached quickly. No matter how much I work on that, that is part of me. That's part of Kevin. And I spent years trying to wish that away.
0: I actually also relate on that level too, believe it or not. And I think being in a relationship for 12 years has changed that a little bit, but I feel that with friendships as well. And just new connections that I make is like really like intense desire to know people the way you were describing it earlier in the conversation. And I really Kevin, it's so interesting. I feel like there's so many like parallels in how both we've seen ourselves and how we've come out of that sense of really just sort of lack of self-acceptance because I went on a really similar journey to you in most of my life being miserable with myself, feeling hidden, feeling trapped inside of myself in a way and not just in terms of not having come out earlier or anything like that. I mean, you did hit the nail on the head, despite the fact that I don't think we've even talked about that, which was that for a very long time, I wasn't accepting of myself because of my sexuality. And recently, (laughs) plenty of my female friends in their 30s who are single have made the comment to me about, oh, like, at this point, like, I just... I." feel like I'd rather be a lesbian because, you know, I just can't deal with, and it's not like, Oh, I, I don't want to be, it is not even just, I hate men. It's like, here's a litany of things that men do that irritate me and women don't do these things. And what I find hilarious about it is, I said to one of my best friends recently, I was like, you know what? I spent a lot of my life feeling really ashamed and disappointed that I was gay. And now everybody's like, being a lesbian seems really great. And I'm like, not going to lie. It's actually pretty good. I'm cool with <laughs> <day." laughs> so it.
1: Like, That's so funny. Um, My male friends and I always joke that like, you know, we've got trouble dealing with chicks in LA, maybe we should just become gay. Because, yeah yeah it, you know it. then we can like watch sports, hang out, you know, <laughs> have sex and it's all gravy. Yeah
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and and I think that you really touch on something that's super important too about auditing your your life and making those decisions for yourself is that it comes back to that initial concept of accountability and acknowledgement that you understand what's going on for you and then it's saying, okay, now that I know what's going on for me, like what is it that I do care about changing? And that innateness in ourselves, where it's like, this is who I am, good, bad, or indifferent. Like, there's plenty of things I still don't like about myself. My propensity for talking is good for the purposes of this, but sometimes it's like, dial that down a minute and, you know, don't bring all of it. And so you have to strike a balance of what you accept about yourself and what you love about yourself. And I think that
1: you have to identify which things are immutable. They're never going to change because they're who you are and which things you can control and you can change. And yeah. Those, and what you want to, right? Like exactly. and that's the balance
0: too. is like, do I, maybe I like this part of man. It's
1: cool. We're going to just ride that wave. Exactly. Like I was about to say the most liberating day of my life, because I was talking about, you know, my attachment stuff and you know, how I tend to get attached in my relationships. The most liberating day of my life was when I woke up and I decided, you know what, this is probably the very thing that makes me the best boyfriend. The fact that I'm emotional, the fact that I'm sensitive, the fact that I get attached, the fact that I care. I've just spent, you know, almost 30 years of my life hating this part of myself. But that is probably my greatest strength in relationships because I can relate to women on a very different level than most men can. So as soon as I said, you know, okay, the things that I don't like about myself, I've worked on them and I've changed them and I'm good with that. Now, let me try to accept the things about myself that are probably never going to change. Let me make friends with those. Let me shake hands with those. It's kind of like your past. Your past is never going to change. So you can either take accountability for it, make friends with it, shake hands with it, and not keep trying to flick it off your shoulder you know, and that way you can actually move forward, or you can spend your life in misery repeating the same mistakes. We get to choose. Like it sounds simplistic to choose your perspective, to choose the way you behave, to choose different outcomes for your life. And I know that it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. I know it's not easy. Believe me, it's taken me years and I'm still working through those things. But the choice is there.
0: And we always are. It's not, I think part of the problem too, that people have sometimes is that we expect to get to a finish line Mm -hmm. and there isn't one, there's not a finish line. And I've had this discussion with friends quite a bit lately in the whole conversation with parents who don't understand or aren't trying to change or can't see it from your perspective. And it's this whole sort of cop out, I call it the conversational escape hatch for my parents is that something's generational. Mm. And you're like, okay, perhaps your generation has a different point of view on this because of how you were raised and your life experiences in a time that is not now. Yes, valid. But your willingness to change or to adapt to what the circumstances are now is predicated solely on You and your desire to make that change because, as human beings, we are built to evolve. And so, if you are going to continue to evolve, you're going to continue literally physically to evolve. You will get older, you will look older. You, if you work out, you will have you'll be in better shape. You have the capacity to do that mentally as well. And frankly, if you're physically evolving, why wouldn't you mentally and emotionally evolve as well? It really, I think, comes full circle and forces us to acknowledge that part of it, which is that you do have the power to change it. And I loved what you said about that. It is simple, but it's not easy because it's it's so true. It's like you have to reach sort of a point of clarity for yourself that you define and you say, this is it. It's going to be a work in progress. It will always be a work in progress. There will be moments where you catch yourself and you're like, don't go there.
1: Don't go there. Come back. Look, it's going to be a work in progress, but let's get to the work. And let's get to the progress.
0: Totally. I love that. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. So you and I both use our platforms to create safe spaces for others to open up. So in doing that, I find I'm also able to learn a lot and apply that more and more from these conversations, like what we're having right now. Do you have a similar sense of the impact of the work that you do with your clients for yourself? Do you find yourself learning from your clients too?
1: Of course. I learn from my clients every day there's never a dull moment with my clients both in the stories they tell me you know the issues that they've been through and in the personal transformations that they create and i make a very specific point of saying the personal transformations that they create because they're showing up they're paying the money they're making the investment they're opening up to me you know i'm there to guide them and hold their hand and walk them through the process but all i ever do to people is hold up an HD mirror like a mirror that sees through their soul but it's a mirror nonetheless so when they're talking to me my job is to reflect back to them the answers that are already inside of them you know so i've got incredible client stories that have taught me so much and warm my heart every day from people leaving toxic relationships to finding their soulmate getting married people quitting their job that they hated to finding their true purpose, making all kinds of money, you know, people going from being depressed and having panic attacks to feeling peaceful and calm and at ease and happy, you know, really amazing transformations. But I can't take credit for it because the capacity for every single one of those people to do that, I didn't inject them with that. They came complete with it. And we all have that capacity, Nikki. We all have the ability to become who we want. The issue is that all of that wisdom and all of that power is like a treasure chest that is buried on the bottom of a sunken ship. The treasure chest is there, but it's buried underneath layers and layers of debris that I've built up over the years. And that debris is your self-doubt, your anxiety, your overthinking, your negative experiences. So the treasure chest is there inside of you, your power, your wisdom, your clarity, your answers. We have to remove, we have to unlearn the shit. You know, we got to remove all of those layers of debris. And that's where I'm here to help people. But as I said, I didn't inject them with This magical ability to change their lives. They have it and they accessed it and brought it out of them. But yeah, I mean, I learn something new from my clients every day and it teaches me a lot about myself and my clients make me a better person. I love that. And I'll tell you why really quickly. Because what my clients force me to do is they force me to be a person who doesn't say do as I say, not as I do. They give me a level of accountability of, I'm always thinking to myself, what would I tell a client? Like if I'm about to fuck up my own life and my client found this out, how could they trust me? How could they be, you know, they'd be disappointed in me. They'd be like, I don't want to follow this guy's advice, you know? So they force me to be in a position where I am really living according to my own values and according to my own teachings. And that's hard. There are so many people. I mean, I'm always amazed at the number of therapists there are out there who are just such wrecks in their personal life. But then they go into their office with their little vase of flowers and, you know, these nice couches. And they sit there and they're like, okay, here's what you should do with your life. But then their life is a complete mess, you know. So it's fascinating. But yeah, I am so eternally grateful to every one of my clients who invests their time and effort into working with me, not only because I see incredible things that they do with their own lives and that's heartwarming and touching, but also because, as I said, it forces me to be a better person.
0: Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with that too. It really holds you accountable. And I feel that in just the conversations I have with people here too, because It really serves as a function to make me ask myself, Am I comfortable or am I happy with the way that I think about certain things or the way that I approach certain things? And so, with that in mind, I think that there is a, I really think it speaks to the human connection and why that's important to both of us because you can't really accelerate your own life completely by yourself. And having other people who are experiencing similar things can be really eye opening, as can completely disparate experiences as well. I I think they're both equally valuable in their own ways. But, you know, when you think about the challenges that we go through as human beings, a big part of why we suffer silently is because we feel like we can't talk about them. Mm -hmm. Uh, we feel like we are going to be embarrassed or ashamed or less than for admitting what is reality when more often than not, people are experiencing similar things or variations of things that are near enough to similar. And you have to take that leap of faith. And that does involve trusting. That involves trusting somebody like yourself or trusting somebody like a therapist or both. I've had this conversation with uh, one of my other guests, Carlin, who's a, a life coach. and you know, therapists and coaches are very different. Like you said, one is very much dealing with sort of the how you got where you are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one is how you move forward from where you are. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that distinction is super important because you have to, I think, have a combination of perspectives to be able to get where you want to go, which is to acknowledge your past because you can't just completely ignore it if you want to be able to propel yourself forward But knowing when to put down the past is also a really important trait to have. So I wanted to ask you one last question. What advice would you give to somebody who feels, quote, stuck inside themselves and needs the encouragement to take that step towards making a meaningful change for themselves? You and I have both gone through that. We've both had our own journeys through that. And I know that a lot of people are apprehensive to go there. Mm. So what do you say to somebody who you can tell wants to go there, but is really afraid of what is on the other
1: side? Mm. That's a great question. So first of all, the reason that that person is miserable and is having a really difficult time in life is exactly that they're stuck. And they're stuck between two points. So I want you to imagine two mountains. And in between the mountain is a giant abyss. It's like the space between the Grand Canyon, you know, like a deep, dark black hole. Okay. Mountain A is who you are and where you are right now. Mountain B across the canyon is who you want to become. The reason so many of us are miserable is that we live perpetually in the abyss between those two mountains without settling into either one. So we neither accept who we are, and how we got here and take responsibility for it, nor put in the requisite work to become who we want to become. That's why we're stuck in so much darkness. You know, It's like, I don't want to accept who I am. I don't want to take responsibility for all these things in the past. All of that is scary. I don't want to relive that. But I also don't know how to move forward. I don't know how to get the things that I want. So you're, you're just stuck in quicksand. It's really difficult to be in that spot. What I would say is that the only way to get to Mountain B is to go back to Mountain A and take responsibility for your life, like we were saying, right? Is to wake up and tell yourself, all right, this is up to me now. Do I want to change? Am I ready to change? And if the answer is yes, then you step back a couple hundred feet and you have to run. And jump off of mountain A and land onto mountain B. And it's scary. It's a jump. You know, you've got the abyss right underneath you. Like you said, people are really afraid. That's why they become addicted to their problems, to come back full circle. But you have to know that what's on mountain B, where you want to go, the person you want to become, is infinitely better than where you were before and infinitely better than being stuck in the abyss. You know why? Because you already know what's in the abyss and you already know what was in your life before and it sucked. So anything is better. You know, it's scary to leave jail. That's why there's such a high recidivism rate. It's scary to break an addiction. That's why there's such a high relapse rate. It's, it's scary, scary to leave an abusive relationship, which I was is about why it takes on that.
0: average seven times to leave it. I was about to say that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm but yeah, I'm so happy you did.
1: It's It's terrifying, terrifying. you know, it's terrifying, but you have to know that logically the alternative is better. And how do you know that? Because you've already lived that and it sucks. So I can't give you, you know, I, I cannot give you a way to make it easier. I can't give you a magic pill that says, this is takes away the fear and it's really easy to make these changes. It's not, but here's what I can do. I can hold your hand and walk you through the process so you don't have to do it alone, right? So for anybody who is listening to this, you want to jump to Mountain B, You want to make these changes in your lives. I know it's damn scary. The only thing that I can do to make it easier is save you some time, give you some tips, some tricks, hold your hand, hold you accountable, make sure you're moving forward so you don't have to do it alone. It's really, really hard to make these changes when you're doing them alone. And I think that's why it took me so long. It took me so many years of being miserable because I thought, I can't rely on anybody else for this shit. You know, who cares? But as soon as I got my ass in therapy, I hired my own coach, you know, I hired my own mentors. I, you know, as soon as I said, okay, I am clearly not equipped to do this alone. That's when I started making progress.
0: Yeah, that's such a great way to close things out. Honestly, I feel like that's exactly the message that people need to hear is that it is not expected that you should be doing this alone. So whether it's having a therapist or a coach or a confidant, somebody that you can talk to and start to open up to. I highly advocate for professional involvement because people are trained to do things differently than just our friends who want to listen. But I do firmly believe that sometimes the first step is to acknowledge it to somebody that you're close with and be able to have that sense of safety just sort of in existence already before you unleash that to somebody else. Because it is really vulnerable and it feels dangerous the way you described leaping between the mountains, right? It feels dangerous. but. I do think it's dangerous, of-
1: but you know what's more dangerous? Tossing the life jacket. So if you're drowning in the ocean and I pull up in a boat and I send you a life jacket, you're not going to throw it behind you and say, "No, I'm doing this by myself." You know, if you're outside in the rain and the freezing cold and I bring you an umbrella, you're probably not going to smash the umbrella and say, "No, I'm going to you know do it myself." Fuck off. Exactly. <laughs> So it's a lot more dangerous to suffer on your own than it is to reach out, you know, and get some assistance.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Kevin, this has been such a great conversation. So enlightening, so thoughtful. So
1: thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Close to my heart. Truly. I feel like we have so much in common and I'm just grateful. I say this to so many people because it's so true that, you know, one of the, craziest things to me is that, you know, in this pandemic, we're so used to just not being around people and it feels normal now, but being able to do this and have conversations with people like yourself has just allowed me to still maintain this sense of closeness and connection and you know, as much as I will curse the internet for all the horrible things that it has to <laughs> offer, I truly feel so lucky to have been able to connect with you and been given the chance to really dive deeper into what you do and who you are and your the way that you see the world because I think more people need that perspective and you offer such a unique one with really your compassion and your clarity for what it is that people need to understand about themselves is so apparent. I can only imagine how lucky your clients feel to know you and to have you in their lives. And as just myself, I'm so happy that we've had this opportunity to connect and to have this conversation. And I hope it's one of many more to come.
1: Nikki, I'm the lucky one. So thank you so much. And I hope to be back.
0: Yes, I absolutely. Let's mark the calendar. (laughs)
1: Love it. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Have a great night. You too. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening and a big thank you to Kevin Nahai for sharing his story and his time. Check out Kevin's thoughtful and relatable content by visiting his Instagram page at Kevin Nahai. This episode's Who the Fuck for a Cause is in support of D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services. If you have the means, visit whothefck.com slash donate to contribute and help end the stigma around mental health. Make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform and if you like what you hear go ahead and share the love by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts too. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast merch and more. Until next time, make sure you subscribe to the Who the Fuck podcast on your preferred platform and if you like what you hear go ahead and share the love by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Share your email at whothefck.com to receive updates about the podcast merch promos and more. Until next time.